Children, you'll notice in the normal place in our bulletin, there are a few words to listen for tonight. Uh, The words are question, love, neighbor, compassion, care, cost, and Jesus. So those are the words uh, for you this evening to keep track of there. More than once over the last 10 years or so, particular events have uh, taken place and uh, certain occasions have arisen uh, that some have declared, love your neighbor moments. Now, these declarations have come from both Christians and non-Christians alike. Uh, They've come from the famous Uh, the not-so-famous or the obscure and the infamous. They have come from uh, the average citizen to uh, activists and organizations, from uh, police and first responders to uh, celebrity pastors and medical professionals and movie stars and professional athletes and, of course, politicians in world leaders. And what's interesting, as we hear those declarations, uh, most of them are followed quickly uh, with a reference or by a reference to this story or the story, the biblical story of the Good Samaritan found in our passage tonight. Uh, it's a story um, that many professing Christians use to not only accentuate but validate the social gospel in which doctrine is declared to be unhelpful or unnecessary because in the story that Jesus tells, He focuses on and stresses love and compassion and mercy and acts of service for the marginalized among us. It's also a passage that many non-Christians use as a means by which to justify their own personal actions and agendas. And this, of course, is problematic, and in some cases, depending upon the situation, it could be considered abhorrent, because the, the declarations that they're making are usually only calling people to submit to their own definition or description of love and neighbor. And then they use the Word of God to justify it. And in so doing, their hypocrisy is on full display for all to see because they act as if, in those situations, they're acting as if the Word of God is authoritative when in fact they don't believe it to be authoritative. They typically reject it as such, except when it suits their needs. And in the process, in Aaron's words from a text thread this week, they twist God's Word to put shackles on others, especially those with tender consciences. And they also reveal their lack of understanding of the passage. And they, they misunderstand the text as a whole because 
this story within this passage is far more than a call to a moralistic, or a, it's more than a moralistic call to love your neighbor. And we discover that as we read the parable within its context. You see, Jesus does use the story, as we will see, to answer the question, who is my neighbor? But this, this question is only one of four in the passage. And, and we can't separate the one from the other three. They can't be divorced from one another. They're inextricably linked to one another. And we need to make sure we keep them together. And when we do, we discover that this lawyer, who is not a Ryan-type lawyer, but he is a, a person who is considered to be an expert in the law of God, he either, one of two things, one, he knew what the law said, but didn't understand what it meant, or he did understand what it meant, and he didn't like it. And regardless of which, he simply was more interested in justifying himself before Jesus and others than submitting himself to the truth of the Word of God. And that goes on today. Many misunderstand God's Word or many understand God's Word but don't like it. And regardless of... Whether they do or don't, they simply want to justify themselves before God and before others, and in some cases, they simply want to manipulate others to their, toward or to their own ends rather than submit themselves to the truth. So what I want to do very simply is just walk through these four questions, offer a little commentary as, as we go along, and then I have three questions of my own to ask at the end uh, for us to apply but of course, we need to pray before we begin. So let's do that now. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, this is your word. And unfortunately, many today misunderstand it. So I ask that by your spirit, you would grant power uh, to the preaching of it tonight. And that you would grant all of us in this room the ability to appraise and apprehend the truth. Awaken our attention and open our sorrows and convict us and challenge us. And then please, please refresh us and encourage us and comfort us. I am far from being an expert and therefore am unfit for this task. So I ask for your support and strength and the filling of your spirit that I might do something good for you this evening. Help me to communicate clearly and fluently and with fervency and grace for the sake of Christ and His church. Amen. So let's look at the first question. It's found in verse 25. The lawyer asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now right on the heels, again the context, right on the heels of verses 21 and 22 in which Jesus very clearly and matter-of-factly communicated that salvation is a gracious gift from the Father and graciously revealed by the Son and not earned or merited in any shape, form, or fashion, the lawyer stood up to ask his question and really stood up simply to present his objection. 
Another way to ask the question could have been, what must I do to be saved? One form or the other uh, is uh, asked in several occasions throughout the New Testament. In particular, we read this, uh, we read it here, we read it in Luke 18, we read it in Acts 2, and we read it in Acts 18. Uh, So this this isn't simply the lawyer's question. This is actually man's default question. Fallen man's default question, fallen man's position. It's our natural inclination. And that's because Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 that eternity has been set in our hearts. We all know instinctively that there is more than this life. And somehow, some way in our minds, in our fallen minds, we believe we have the ability to earn God's favor and to justify ourselves and put ourselves in a position where we can possess it because we deserve it. In other words, our natural fallen position is that we believe salvation is obtainable, has to be obtainable through our own self-righteousness. It must be based on our performance. It is merit-based. It has to be somehow our eternal future is in our hands. It's under our control, and we can obtain it in our own power. And we believe that And it's reinforced because everything in life points us in that direction, does it not? From the time we first earned dessert by cleaning all the broccoli off our plate, until we go to school and we get stickers for being good and have sticks pulled for being bad, and then earn positions on and playing time on athletic teams and earn scholarships to the point that when we enter the workforce or the marketplace, we earn year-end performance bonuses, and we earn merit-based raises and promotions. Everything is about what we can do, and we see it in religion as well. We see it with Islam and its five pillars, and Buddhism and its eightfold path, and Hinduism and its karma. I'm going to skip what I said. The only thing... (laughs) holding us back, the only thing holding us back is knowing what it is we need to do. Just tell us. Tell me what I need to do. Tell me exactly what we need to do to experience salvation and eternal life. But really, when all is said and done, what we really want is just to determine it for ourselves. We want to decide for ourselves rather than to submit to some authority outside of ourselves, and and when we do make those determinations, our tendency, again, as a fallen man, our tendency is to lower the bar and create ways that are manageable and easy, it requires, that require a minimum amount of effort. And then not only that, we we then develop and maintain the conviction that the way we have determined is best and right, and therefore it really is the only way. But really what's even more interesting in this is that the lawyer, while he asks this common question, 
in reality, he's, he wasn't in the end really all that interested in eternal life as much as he was in putting Jesus on the spot. We see this even in his posture, right? He stands to speak. He takes the position of the teacher. Right? He, was, he was the expert. He was wise and learned, as we read back in verse 21. He failed to maintain the position of child or disciple and remained seated at the teacher's feet, as we will see Mary in uh, next week. We've got two examples this week and next of what Jesus said back in verse 21. But being able to read the position, right? he stands, he wants to flex his intellectual muscles a bit and wants to put Jesus in his place. But Jesus knows Uh, the lawyer's heart, he can read the situation, and so he answers the question with a question. It's a great question. It's the second one of our passage. He looked, Jesus looked at the lawyer and says, well, what is, you're the expert. What's written in the law? How do you read it? He doesn't mince words. He doesn't play games. He didn't attempt to keep him engaged by treading lightly or tiptoeing around the issue. He didn't even try to change the subject or, or, or persuade him with intellectual arguments. He just puts the pressure right back on the lawyer. Good question, but I got one better for you. You're the expert. What does the law say? And the lawyer answers perfectly, as he should. He's the expert. And he quotes from Deuteronomy 6.4 and Leviticus 19.18, and he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus agrees, says, correct, absolutely right. So, if that's what the law says, do it. If that's what it says, do it. You do these two things. And you'll be keeping the whole law. Love God, love your neighbor, and you'll inherit eternal life. Now, there are two important things that we need to understand here, uh, points that need to be made uh, about this response. First, notice Jesus says, do this, love God and love your neighbor, and you will live. You will inherit eternal life. Now, but what do we know to be true? It is obtainable only through perfect obedience. It's not occasional obedience, it's not sporadic obedience, it's not four out of seven days of the week obedience, it's not when you feel like it obedience, it's not only, you know, only as best you can obedience, it's perfect obedience. Only perfect obedience will do. And secondly, notice that the lawyer knew the right answer, but he wasn't living in the right way. Had he already been loving God and loving his neighbor as he should have been, Jesus simply would have said, carry on as you have been. Keep up the good work. But he doesn't. He says, do this. Do this. And in doing so, the law does what the law was intended to do, and the law convicts the lawyer of his shortfall and his sin. And it puts him in this dilemma that we see 
in the third question. The lawyer asks, well, then who's my neighbor? Right? Who's my neighbor? Luke's commentary on the passage says that the lawyer was simply trying to justify himself. And that's because he knew, he knew he was not loving well. He wasn't loving God well. He wasn't loving his neighbor well. He for sure wasn't doing it perfectly. And so he asks the question, who is my neighbor? And in asking that question, he's basically saying, how much do I have to love? Right? I'm not loving fully, so, so how much? How much should I love? And And it's really another way of saying, what's the least amount of love I have to exhibit? And when we put these, remember, these are all linked. So, who's my neighbor linked to the other questions? We know that he's really saying, what's the the minimum amount of love I have to express toward people to inherit eternal life? Really what he's saying... Really what he's saying is, what's the minimum amount of love I have to express to, you know, narrow this down for me, Jesus, and give me, give me a few that I have to exhibit the minimum amount of love to. And he was hoping Jesus would do that. He was hoping that he would tell him, okay, instead of everybody, we'll, we'll give you, you know, a select few, and there are only there are only four or five things you need to do, and you'll be good. He wanted to be confident in his right standing before God, but Jesus doesn't give him the answer that he wanted. He answers uh, with one of the most famous stories in the Bible. A man is traveling uh, from uh, Jerusalem to Jericho, Jericho to Jerusalem, We don't know much about him, but he's jumped by a couple of muggers. They take everything that he owns, even his clothes, beat him and leave him in a ditch on the side of the road to die. And at two separate points, two individuals come by, a priest and a Levite. They're both coming down the road, so they're coming from Jerusalem to Jericho, And wherever they're going, they're not in a particular hurry. Um, There's no agenda. They're simply traveling and probably headed home, and very likely headed home from having fulfilled their responsibilities in the temple. And so they're headed home after worship. Well, they both see the man in the ditch. But rather than to go, rather than go and assist, I mean, they had the provisions to do so, particularly the priest who would have been more well-to-do, and he probably was even on a donkey. So they both had what they needed to help this man, and yet both go out of their way to move to the other side of the road to pass by. And this is where the potential of them headed home from worship is important because first, had they been headed up the hill to fulfill the responsibilities at worship, we could almost give them a pass because had they approached and touched what could have been a dead man, and and not to mention a a naked man, uh, they would have 
made themselves ritualistically unclean and unable to perform their duties in the temple, so we could almost give them the pass and say, well, okay, we understand, but, but they're not. They're leaving from Jerusalem. So if they have just left worship, it was unfortunate that their love for God hadn't translated into love for neighbor. Their lack of love for the man really called into question their, or, or, yeah, their lack of love for the man called into question their love for the Lord, despite the fact that they had been serving him in the temple. And at, the, at this point, you can imagine the lawyer is probably squirming because in the pecking order of both serving in the temple as well as in um, just society as a whole, he would have been next, or he would have been represented next, because a Jewish layman should have been that third person. But to his surprise, that doesn't happen, and Jesus introduces a Samaritan. He introduces what Jews would have considered a half-breed in a lower race in their minds. Tax collectors and sinners would have been higher on the pecking order. The only ones worse would have been Gentiles. So he's got the full, right, he's got the full attention of this lawyer because more than likely, Jesus, of course, is doing this on purpose, and so he's targeting the lawyer's most glaring problem. So Jesus says the Samaritan, unlike the priest and the Levite, he was actually going somewhere, he had an objective, he was on a journey, so there was, there was a place he was uh, there was a place he was going, there was something that he had to do, and yet unlike the priest and the Levite, he, he shows compassion. The compassion moves him to go toward the man, and he stops and pauses in his journey and goes to check on him to see if he's alive or dead. And then he finds out that he's alive, and, and we're, not, we're not told if he is a Jew or not, but right, we're assuming that he is. And if that's the case, this compassion caused this Samaritan to move toward and take care of someone who would not have done the same thing if the roles were reversed. He didn't know if he was faking. He didn't know if he himself was going to get hurt. He, he wasn't worried about what might happen if another Jew came along because if another Jew had come along, he might have assumed that this Samaritan had hurt the man in the first place. But not only does he have compassion, he takes care of his wounds, he binds him up and, and, and puts him on his donkey, he, he uses that which he has and, and takes care of the man, he used everything at his disposal, his resources, his time, his energy, and then he risks, risks everything by going into Jerusalem through the gates again, others could have assumed that he had done this. The next morning, as, as he, uh, he takes him to the innkeeper and, and gives uh, the innkeeper money and says, whatever it costs, take care of, and if it goes beyond that, I'll be back. Again, another risk, because he didn't know how the innkeeper would actually respond to him. He could have set him up if he was on his way back into town. I mean, it was costing him a great deal. He's being vulnerable to take care of this man. And so that brings us to the fourth question, right? The lawyer is, is really out of sorts at this point. 
And Jesus says, which of these three proved to be a neighbor? And the lawyer probably reluctantly, but again correctly answers, and he says, the one who showed him mercy. The one who showed the man mercy. And Jesus again says, you're correct. Go and do likewise. Now, there are three things that tell us that this didn't quite work out the way the lawyer had planned, all right? The first, the first is notice how J, uh, Jesus changed the lawyer's question. The question he asked was, who's my neighbor? Jesus comes back with, who proved to be a neighbor? The lawyer was focused on behavior. Jesus turned it into a question of character. The lawyer was concerned about doing. Jesus was concerned about being the lawyer was concerned about actions. Jesus was concerned about the heart. Second, the lawyer couldn't even make himself say the word Samaritan. All he could say was the one who showed mercy. And three, Jesus tells him to go and do likewise. Again, had he been doing the things that he... That, had he been doing those things, Jesus would have said... All right, keep doing what you're doing. Do it just like you have been, but he doesn't. So we see that Jesus at this point exposes the depth of the lawyer's hypocrisy and made him face the fact that he hadn't been loving everybody. He had probably been loving the lovable he had probably been loving those like himself, but he wasn't going out of his way, even with them, to burden himself while he did it. And he, and he definitely wasn't loving those who were harboring ill will toward him or those who he considered an enemy. So in the end, this story isn't intended to challenge us as believers to love our neighbor better as much as it is intended to convict and warn both non-believers and we as believers alike of our bent toward self-righteous ideations and low bar, manageable, minimal effort, self-justifying actions and lifestyles in which we both diminish the law and the power needed to fulfill it that comes in the gospel that changes hearts. It's a warning. It's a warning to beware of living as if we are not in need of a heart change. It's a warning for us to beware that we're not in need of forgiveness and that eternal life is based on and earned by our self-righteous actions. Thus, the irony, the irony when this story is used by those to virtue signal and attempt to bind the consciences of others with good works that God has not commanded in His holy word 
and are simply devised by men out of a blind zeal and then use the Bible to justify their good intentions. And those words, by the way, I borrowed from our confession in chapter 16. So I said I'd end with three questions. Let's ask those together. First, are you a neighbor? I ask myself, am I a neighbor? When we encounter someone with an immediate need, right? that's what we, we see here, an immediate need. Are we moved with compassion? Are we willing to go the extra mile to care for that individual? Are we willing to count the cost and spend and expend that what, what is needed to care for that individual? Is our attitude that what's mine is yours, like the Samaritan, or is our attitude more what's mine is mine? like the priest and the Levite? Are we willing to go out of our way and set aside our schedules? By the way, I had this just came to me, but I had an individual one time tell me, and I've, I've filed that away, and he said, ministry takes place in the interruptions. Ministry takes place in the interruptions. Are we willing to set aside our schedules are we willing to set aside our own needs for the sake of the other? And are we more concerned with our own neighborly, neighborliness than we are the lack of neighborliness in others? Are we more concerned with our own neighborliness than we are with the question, who is our neighbor? Are we neighbors? Secondly, is everyone your neighbor? Is everyone our neighbor? Are we willing to look beyond appearances and ethnicities and socioeconomic status and spiritual states and someone's inability to love us in return and are we willing to love them? Are we willing to love even our enemies? Those who revile us, those who hate us, those who hold us in disdain. If you'll remember, we learned in Luke 6 that they are our neighbors too. So is everyone our neighbor? And the last question is this. Does our love for our neighbor justify us or determine our salvation in any way? And the answer is no. It does not justify us. And that should be good news. Because even on our best day, we fail to meet the standard of perfection that's required. At best, we're inconsistent. And that's why built into our liturgy, many times uh, on, on a Sunday as we gather for worship, we will, we will repent of the fact that we don't love as we ought either by what we fail to do or by the things that we, uh, either by what we fail to do or by what we do do. Either way, we fall short. And that is Jesus' ultimate point. 
That's the point of this story. Jesus did say, go and do likewise. He did it twice. But he knows more than anybody that there is no way that this gentleman is going to do it apart from himself. He's not going to be able to do it on his own. Jesus does, and he he wants the lawyer to come to that conclusion on his own. Jesus did ultimately answer the lawyer's question, just not in the way the lawyer wanted. What the lawyer should have said, right? He hears the words, go and do likewise. What the lawyer should have said was, but I can't. Jesus, I try, but I can't. No matter what I seem to do, I just don't love God the way I ought. And I just don't love my neighbor the way I want and the way I know I should. And Jesus, I am harboring a great deal of disdain for Samaritans. There's hatred in my heart. To which Jesus would have responded, again, you're correct. You don't. So look to me. Look to me. You've acknowledged your inability. Now repent of your sin and believe on me and you will live. And unfortunately, the lawyer didn't do it. Brothers and sisters, our only hope of justification, of being mate right with God, is not to depend upon ourselves. And our work, and our own self-righteousness, and our ability to keep the law, and how we love Him, and how we love our neighbor. Our only hope is is to depend upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and His righteousness, and not only His ability to keep the law, but His complete and successful fulfillment of the law on our behalf. Because all of us, All of us were not simply attacked by robbers and left for dead on the side of the road. Each and every one of us were dead and decaying in the misery of our sins and trespasses. And Jesus, an outcast, despised by men, didn't just cross a road, he condescended left the throne of God, took on flesh, dwelt among us, and was obedient to the point of death on the cross, where he compassionately and lovingly and graciously, mercifully paid the entirety of our eternal debt so that we might be forgiven. He earned our forgiveness on the cross. And not only that, his perfect life of obedience has been credited to us. 
It's been imputed to us. His, his perfect love for his father, his perfect love for neighbor, for us as neighbors, his perfect love has all been credited to us. And we are therefore not only forgiven, but we are perfectly righteous in our standing before him. He's done it all. We must always remember that we are saved by works, just not ours. We're saved by the work of Christ for us. Our salvation is not dependent upon our desire and ability to love Him, on our desire and ability to love others. Our salvation is dependent upon the fact that He loved us. He loved us first. We would be unable to love Him had He not loved us first. He loved us and gave Himself up for us. Now, some may be asking, does that mean we aren't called to fulfill the law and love our neighbor? And I hope you know the answer to that is no, because I ask you the first two questions. But I'll still say the answer is no, not at all. We've been saved from the curse of the law, and our salvation is not dependent upon our fulfillment of it. Of it. But listen to these words from Michael Horton. He says, The gospel does not relieve us of the duty to love God and neighbor. Our good works receive their direction from the law, but we are only able to draw our strength from the gospel. You may remember the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, Now, you must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But the command to be perfect does not have the power to bring it about in us. Fortunately for you and me, again, Christ loved us perfectly and loved others perfectly on our behalf. And as we learned in our study of Galatians chapter 5, having been loved perfectly, we are now free to go and love. And when we fail to love, as we often do, we repent of our sin, and we rest in His love of God and His love for others on our behalf, perfectly for us, and then we try again. We're commanded to love. We're commanded to love deeply, but this isn't simply a love or, or a command to simply follow Christ's example or to, uh, to live up to this illustration that we've just read. There's so much more to that. It's a command to live out of the realities of Christ's work on our behalf. Not only have we been baptized into his death, but we've been raised to walk in newness of life. Those are Paul's words to the Romans. We've been crucified with Christ, so we've died to the law, so that we might live to God. Those are Paul's words to the Galatians. Loving deeply, even imperfectly, is actually a way that we might present our bodies as living sacrifices, which is our spiritual worship. Again, Paul's words to the Romans. And all of that comes because of the mercies of God that are ours, ours in Christ. We can't do it in the flesh. It's only because of Christ. And this is where the lawyer was off track. 
And this is where we need to stay on the rails. This is where he originally went off the track, and this is where we need to stay on the rails because the lawyer forgot. He had forgotten how the Decalogue began, how the Ten Commandments began. They didn't begin with the first commandment. They began with these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's how the law began. The law was never, ever intended to be used as a ladder to climb into God's good graces. The law was given to those on whom He had already lavished grace. Again, in Michael Horton's words, we don't work for a secure future. We work from a secure present. Through the gospel, the Spirit produces faith, faith produces love, and love goes out to others in good works. May the Lord grant us the desire and the ability and opportunities to fulfill what He commands in Christ, by faith, in the Spirit. Let's pray.